0: The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Thank goodness for Substack and The Federalist and a lot of websites that continue to tell the truth, in spite of the fact that they get shut down and banned and shadowed and all the rest of these terms that I don't even know what they mean, but I do know that they stifle public conversations. And that is absolutely frightening. There was actually a story of someone being stifled this last week for reprinting or reposting an article that was written in the 50s. Now, mind you, in the 50s, things were pretty tame but it was deemed hate speech. There's a project out there right now that's so disturbing to me, I had to talk about it. The U.S. Surgeon General, this Vivek Murthy, just released an advisory called, quote, our epidemic of loneliness and isolation, end quote. It warns that social isolation is a major public health problem. It's an 81-page document, which I managed to get through about 40 pages of before I was bored to tears and became uh, lonely and isolated myself. But the 81-page document actually presents six government-directed pillars of action. Pillars of action, now if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. And they claim they will address the health hazards of social isolation. And on the surface, these six directives look kind of innocuous, but they present a very clear and present danger to the autonomy of my private life and your private life and relationships. The project is potentially so large in scope that it's not an overstatement to say that it literally threatens to regulate our freedom of association in ways we could have never imagined. I don't think George Orwell could have imagined them. So I wanna look in depth at these pillars and the risks that they pose. The first stated goal is to strengthen social infrastructure in local communities. Now, what does it define as social infrastructure? Well, it says regular events and institutions that make up community life, and says that the federal government should both fund local organizations And direct how they're structured, including their locations. This can only mean that all local communities have to answer now to the federal bureaucracy in the quest to strengthen social connections among people living in similar places. Social infrastructure, the report says, includes physical parts of a community, like housing, and libraries, and parks, and recreation spaces, uh, transportation systems, and so forth. The report expresses concern that some people have better access to such locations than other people, and recommends federal interventions. Just those two words, federal interventions, give me the chills those are likely to be used to promote densified housing along the lines of the 15-minute city, which is more accurately termed 15-minute ghetto, as well as the eventual dismantling of single-family housing. You see, the goal of replacing private vehicles with public transportation fits very easily into this scheme too. I don't presume that this plan will by itself drive wholesale changes in our physical infrastructure, but it would certainly provide the authority and even the justification for changes that are supported by the radical environmentalists, all of which diminish my freedom. They diminish your freedom too. The advisory warns that participation is mandatory if the plan is to work. It will take all of us, individuals, families, schools and workplaces healthcare and public health systems, technology companies, governments, faith organizations, and communities working together. Now, wait a minute. Some of these organizations work in contrast to one another, but hey, don't confuse them with the facts. The report's proposed infrastructure to solve the problem of social isolation seems designed to lock everybody into compliance with and dependence upon federal mandates. Local control, gone. It is lost. You end up with a massive federal infrastructure that can monitor the levels of social connection and disconnection in every nook and cranny of society. As described in the report, this would mean that every institution, every governmental department, every volunteer association, every locality, every church or synagogue, every faith community, every organization, every club, every service club, every sports league, and so on and so on, would likely be assessed and, quote, strengthened to promote social connection. According to the second pillar, government has a responsibility to use its authority to monitor and mitigate the public health harm caused by policies, products, and services that drive social disconnection. How are you going to track and mitigate that? Well, it requires establishing cross-departmental leadership to develop and oversee an overarching social connection strategy. DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility are critical components of any such strategy. If you're not scared yet, you are dead from the neck up. In other words, some people are more socially connected than others, and that's not fair. They enjoy benefits, as in unearned privileges, that put others at a disadvantage. So the government needs to intervene for the sake of equality, no, not equality, for the sake of equity, to spread the wealth of social connection. DEI is a creature of identity politics, which serves to erase human individuality and replace it with demographic identity markers that label people as either oppressors or victims, thus cultivating more resentments and more hostilities in society. By injecting the codes of diversity and equity and inclusion into all social relationships, we're bound to become even more divided, more alienated, and more lonely. And the federal government is bound to become even more authoritarian and meddlesome in our personal relationships and our social interactions. Another threat to the private sphere of life comes under the directive to, quote, mobilize the health sector by expanding public health surveillance and interventions. That sounds very much like tracking your social connections and intervening when the bureaucracy deems it necessary. Big Brother's gonna be sitting in on your doctor visits and even your therapy sessions. The report indicates that healthcare workers will be trained to track cases of what the government views as social connection and disconnection. And as they obediently report to the federal bureaucracy, most individual and local control, poof, will be lost. Medicine is bound to become more federalized and less private than ever when answering to these mandates. Consider also that mental health practitioners are already suggesting that signs of racial or cultural bias should be classified as a mental illness. Of course, to the promoters of DEI, all white people are inherently racially biased simply because of their skin color. This brings to mind the disturbing practice in the Soviet Union of consigning political dissenters to psychiatric treatment. The official line was that you must be mentally ill if you disagree with communism. The advisory recognizes that overuse of the internet and social media can drive people deeper into social isolation, but it also promotes centralized government controls over technology development, especially in human interactions. We must learn, it says, more by requiring data transparency from technology companies. So government gets to decide how to design and how to use such technologies. It would very likely compel technology companies to provide data to the government on Americans' social connections. The advisory also backs the quote development of pro-connection technologies, hmm. with the goal of creating safe environments and safeguarding the well-being of users. Such phrasing has been used in recent years to justify censorship under the guise of protecting certain demographics. In light of the importance of DEI to the overall strategy, this sounds ominously like a call for further protection. For instance, government control of the private sphere. Again, the primary director of all these remedies is the federal bureaucracy not a trusted family member, not a friend, not a pastor, not a neighbor. The fifth pillar of the advisory pushes a, quote, research agenda. Oh, you got to love this, that enlists all stakeholders. That means every level of government, every organization, every corporation, every school, every family, every individual to deepen their knowledge about social connection and disconnection. Of course, the advisory has already predetermined the outcome of much of this research, and we can be reasonably confident this research will reflect the outlook offered by the advisory. After all, that's how researchers get grants and research contracts. Imagine institutions publicizing their studies through a media monopoly that promotes the preferred narrative on what kinds of relationships we should have, what we can and can't talk about. Essentially, we'll get a flood of government propaganda about their preferences for human relationships. So much for liberals and conservatives ever sitting down at dinner again together. In the context of today's censorship regime, this means promoting a single narrative that will drown out any competing views offered by critics, like me, and the public, like you, with the favored views of government and corporate interests parroted endlessly by big media. Finally, the advisory advocates for cultivating a culture of connection, one based on kindness and respect and service and commitment to one another. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? Unfortunately, our government's relentless push for woke policies tells us that we cannot expect to understand those terms as traditional virtues. Rather, such terms will likely be used in woke or wellian fashion to direct our social interactions and behaviors. For example, not dating a transgender person is now labeled unkind and transphobic. Gender-affirming care, like the castration and mutilation of children, is the only, quote, respectful way of treating gender dysphoria. Your responsibility is to comply without question. Remember when I made up those buttons that many of us are still wearing that says you must refuse to comply. The advisory also calls for media and the arts to promote stories that encourage connection, most likely in the Orwellian sense that wokeness demands. Further, the report cautions that certain kinds of social connection are harmful for individuals and society. It warns that Too much like-mindedness can lead to extremism and violence. We should be very skeptical of the federal government's role in deciding which groups it deems acceptable, given its growing politicization of law enforcement, its attempts to silence concerned parents at school board meetings by labeling them domestic terrorists, and its overall undermining of due process and the Bill of Rights. Ironies abound in this advisory. The pretext for government injecting itself into our personal lives is to rescue us from the misery of our loneliness epidemic. Never mind that government policies are largely to blame for family breakdown, for welfare dependency, for urban blight, for attacks on free speech, for attacks on privacy, and countless other developments that result in an acute sense of isolation and polarization. Never mind that the proven prescription for loneliness is the opposite, a private sphere of life where intact families raise their children with a sense of virtue, where institutions of faith give people a sense of order and purpose in life, and where friends can confide in one another without meddlers eavesdropping on their conversations. This sphere of life, the private sphere, is the fount of freedom and love and trust that nurtures social connections. It can only thrive in privacy. But this private sphere seems to be in the crosshairs of this massive government project that the uh, Surgeon General Murthy has projected to fix the social connections of all Americans. The government will doubtless enlist a media monopoly and big tech for support in monitoring those connections. Given the current direction of this administration's policy, it will also deploy heavy handed political censorship of which Murthy already proved a huge fan during COVID to enforce compliance and punish dissent. Such censorship heightens the fear of speaking openly which only builds more walls between people. Ironically, we would end up more atomized than ever. This may sound over the top to some who may find the advisory benign and even welcoming, and perhaps just a narrowly focused plan to address a recognized health issue. But I am very skeptical about that for two reasons. The first is the natural inclinations of bureaucracies populated by experts. Bureaucracies never shrink. They continuously grow and bloat. That's the nature of the beast. Their protectors keep pushing their relevance on some issue or problem. Their experts, who will always know better than anyone else, will present solutions to be deployed by the bureaucracy. Compliance will then be demanded and the bureaucracy will continue to bloat until its tentacles strangle every area of life. The second reason for skepticism is history, which is filled with examples of governments invading the private sphere of life, specifically the institutions of family, faith, and community. That private sphere is still the most decentralized area of life, the one in which individuals are most able to think and speak freely, unless the government invades. Communist China, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany are prime examples in the 20th century of government invading the private sphere. Eminent sociologist Robert Nisbet wrote about the deep-seated tendency of governments to hijack the functions of the mediating institutions of family, faith, and community. When the government takes over those functions, We lose those institutions as buffer zones between the isolated individual and the all-powerful state. We become powerless in the resulting isolation. Nisbet posed this rhetorical question. What remains then but to rescue the masses from their loneliness, their hopelessness, and despair by leading them into the promised land of the absolute redemptive state? I believe the Surgeon General's advisory vindicates Nisbet's point. Indeed, the state creates the malady and then offers its authority as the only cure as it rushes into the vacuum. The strategy for doing so seems pretty evident in the six pillars of the report. No one can say for sure where this Ministry of Loneliness proposal will end up. History, particularly recent history, has warned us about such projects. The goals of this advisory may seem unobjectionable, but the concern is about who decides how we connect socially. When the who is the federal government, we should remember that the pattern of the mass state is always to induce loyalty to the mass state. That pattern always comes with a push to surrender our loyalty to one another as individual human beings capable of real kindness and real love. That amounts to something I call the weaponization of loneliness. We have to insist on making our own decisions to live as free individuals, which means pushing back in any way possible against potential intrusions in the private sphere of life. It means rejecting the pseudo-intimacy and pseudo-connection that our federal government seems intent on foisting upon us in exchange for control of our private lives and relationships. Otherwise, we end up in much worse isolation that renders us powerless and unfree. A hat tip to Stella Morabito. She's a senior contributor at The Federalist and the author of The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear and of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. I read her essays, I'm reading her book, and I suggest you do so as well. And now for the most absurd in woke stories, the Audubon Society. How much do you know about the Audubon Society? Well, I know that it is an organization that literally watches birds. How harmful can that be? Well, listen to this. As Egyptian geese and an LAPD helicopter circle overhead, Chuck Almdale, a 76-year-old bird watcher, skirts past a homeless camp. He stops on the banks of a sewage treatment pond filled with mallards and coots and herons and sets up a setting, spotting scope. With scattered trash and people sleeping in cars nearby, it isn't quite National Geographic, but all this bird life smack dab in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles is still pretty impressive. As long as people keep flushing their toilets, we've got a steady supply of water here, and that attracts birds, says Almdale, sidestepping a human turd. Suddenly he looks up. There goes a bush tit, he yells as a tiny bird streaks past. Elmdale is a lifelong member of the Audubon Society, which is a nonprofit made up of mainly retirees who trudge through tall grass looking for woodcocks and shags. In 1896, a pair of upper-crust Bostonian ladies founded the Massachusetts Audubon Society in a bid to outlaw feather hats. They named the group after John James Audubon. The fine artist and bird collector whose paintings and books influenced Charles Darwin and sparked public protection of animals, helping birth the modern conservation movement. The National Wing formed in 1905. For decades, the Society has quietly protected birds and wildlands and parks without getting anyone's beak out of joint but lately, members of this organization have gotten their feathers ruffled over a very human issue, race. The problem is Audubon himself, who lived from 1785 to 1851 and owned at least nine black slaves who worked the family home in Henderson, Kentucky. He also enslaved people as assistants in the field while he was shooting birds to collect specimens, adds Gregory Nobles, a biographer who says Audubon was dismissive of the abolition movement and frequently hunted in the South. At one point, Audubon took two enslaved men down the Mississippi to New Orleans and sold them. I don't know how you can spend so much time in close quarters with people and then sell both the boat and the men. Records show Audubon also robbed Native American graves and collected human skulls. Today, many consider him a racist, even though some believe he may have been mixed race himself, owing to a Creole mother and passed himself off as white. Simply to say he was a man of his time and bore no responsibility on slavery is historically and intellectually a mistake, according to nobles. Now some Audubon birders want the National Society's name changed. They believe a rebrand will help conservation because more people of all races will be attracted to the cause, although no alternative titles have been agreed upon. Opponents argue that changing the name means losing brand affinity. Most Americans, including big donors, associate Audubon with birds, They say, and changing the name risks the very conservation they seek to promote. The debate properly started in March of 2022 when the National Audubon Society assigned a task force, oh my gosh, how I hate task force, to examine the impact of a name change in the wake of George Floyd's death and the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, that has anything to do with bird watching. The task force, comprising some of the society's then 26 board members, studied Audubon's life with a historian and a philosopher and had meetings about the issue, but didn't formally survey outside members for their thoughts, and multiple task force members were not pleased. We didn't really know what steps were in the process after we had submitted our reports until we saw the ultimate decision, says Nobles, the historian who was hired as a task force consultant. Meanwhile, rank-and-file members across the country waited for news, expecting a name change from the national wing as proof that the group, which has one and a half million members and took in some $152 million in revenue last year, was moving with the times. In 2021, Audubon magazine printed an article by a former black board member arguing for a new name, stating that the founding father of American boarding soared on the wings of white privilege. The national wing had also published blog posts reflecting on its namesake's dark history, both of which foreshadowed a rebrand, members said. One year later, according to multiple task force members, the condition of anonymity being used to hide who they were, the task force internal report recommended a name change. And yet, in a shock move, the board voted against it. And though the board announced plans to devote $25 million to diversity programs, three board members resigned in protest over the decision to keep the Audubon name. He was a racist, a slave owner. He desecrated Indian burial sites, Aaron Geese, one of the board members who quit, said. At the same time, members of Audubon's more than 450 chapters and groups did their own soul searching. And over the past years, at least eight have voted to change their names. New York, Chicago, Seattle, Detroit, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, Madison in Wisconsin, and the Audubon Naturalist Society in Maryland, which is completely independent. Last October, the Naturalist Society rechristened itself Nature Forward, and in March, Seattle Audubon became Birds Connect Seattle, but the other six are still unsure what to call themselves. What a mess. Judging Audubon by modern standards is really the problem of wokeness. The division isn't red versus blue. It's far left versus center left. And it's more generational than racial. Progressives who drive Priuses, voted for Hillary and Burden, call themselves never Trumper. They want to change the name. This is a divider and a bunch of propaganda. So again, I say to you, at what cost do we allow the woke, obsessed left to challenge and change everything that we have known and loved for years. I'm not a racist, and I don't really care if Audubon was a racist. And I'm not even a bird watcher, but for goodness sake, I've always known the Audubon Society as the guys who protected the birds.